You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 27, and we will be uh, in the verses that Bianca just read for us. Thank you, Bianca. Uh, But specifically, we'll be in verse 4. As you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. If you're new, my name is Jamin. And I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. Uh, Welcome. We are really honored uh, that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you're watching online, uh, if you're doing that for the first time, or maybe you've been doing it for a long time, welcome. Um, We are going to get back into our wisdom series in two weeks. So on August 28th, we'll be back in Wisdom and Wonder. We'll spend a couple of weeks uh, doing recap just to kind of uh, remember Uh, where we've been. And then on September 11th, we will start a couple of weeks on wisdom and family. And and really where that'll begin uh, is looking back at your family of origin, the family you grew up in. Our very first uh, place, the very first context in which we were discipled or not was in our home growing up. And so part of wisdom is being able to look with wisdom back on uh, childhood and teenage years and all that. I need to stop or I'm going to start preaching that sermon. Uh, and we're not going to do that until September 11th. This morning, what I want to do is I want to uh, look at Psalm 27 and, and give all of our time to verse 4. Um, it's a psalm that we've been in before. It's a verse that we talk about often. And it's something that I just want to continue to come back to as a church. What's true about this verse, specifically verse 4, is that it's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. And at the same time, it's one of the most challenging verses for me in all the Bible because of what it exposes about my life. Namely, it exposes that I do not want God, do not desire God, do not love God like I should. Uh, It's a psalm about David's love for God. Uh, We'll unpack this, and it'll take us a bit to get there, but he says three things about God. He tells God the future that he wants, the kind of God he wants, and what he wants more of. And it sounds like this. One thing have I asked of the Lord, if you'll look with me. One thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life. To do what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, If I put it in my own words, it's this. God, there's one thing I want, and it's you. There's a future I want, and it's with you. Uh, I want to... uh, Search and look upon your beauty, and I want more and more of you. That's his prayer. That's next level love for God. Like, especially when you consider the the context of of what's happening. He says, an army encamps against me. His enemies surround me. He is in trouble. And yet, in his circumstance of trouble, what overwhelms that, what takes over that is his love for God. One thing I want, you, God, to be with you. You're beautiful. I want more and more of you. That's the prayer of someone who really loves God. There's a Catholic author and poet. Her name is St. Teresa of Avila. She lived and served in the Catholic Church in the 1500s. I don't know a whole lot about her story or her writings, but there's a prayer that she's famous for that I've come across a couple times, and it always gives me pause. It's always kind of comforting and haunting at the same time. And here's her prayer. It'll be on the screen behind me. Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. What kind of prayer is that? Like that sounds very different than David's prayer, right? If you're at dinner and you're going to pray for the meal and you ask someone to pray, hey, who wants to pray? And someone says, I'll pray. And you're like, okay, great. And they say, bow your heads. And then they say, God, I don't love you. I don't even want 
to love you, but I want to want to love you. And um, thank you for the food. Amen. <laughs> How would that land at the table? You'd probably be like, hey, does anyone else want to give it a shot? Like that? <laughs> I don't think that counted. The food's going to spoil or something. David prays, the one thing I want is you to be with you, to behold your beauty in all of my life. I just want more and more of you. Wow, he loves God. St. Teresa prays, God, I don't love you. I don't want to love you, but I want to want to love you. Wow, she seems troubled. She seems like she's doubting. Maybe she seems like she's faithless. What, what kind of prayer is that? In some ways, friends, that, that question is what I want to spend all of our time answering. What kind of prayer is that? Like if you could pick a prayer that was true, but if you could choose one to be true automatically about your heart, which one do you pick? David's. One thing I want is you, God. But most days, if I can be honest, then I will. And maybe if you can be honest, then I hope you are. The prayer that is more honest is not David's. It's Teresa's. The prayer sounds a lot more like, God, I don't love you. I don't want to love you. I want to want to love you. When I was a sophomore in high school, I saw a book in my dad's office. He's a, he's a pastor. And I was at the church in his office, and the book was by John Piper. And the book was called, When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. And I took that book home and read it. It was the first Christian book I ever read that no one made me read. And, and a lot of the quotes from today will come from that book. But the reason I picked it up is, and the reason I read it is because it put words to something that even then troubled me about my own heart. And, and it's in the title, when I don't desire God, what do I do? And by desire, what we really mean is when I don't love God, because all over the Bible, loving God includes desiring him. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul says, I desire to be with Christ, and I count everything, everything else as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And that's what it sounds like to love God. It's this one thing I want is God. Loving God is this all-encompassing love for him where head and heart are united in an intellectually informed, heart-inflamed, soul-satisfying desire for all of who God is and always will be. And I didn't have that as a sophomore in high school. And I don't have that now. The book I read then was on not desiring God. There's a book I'm reading now, 20 years later, written by a Christian neuroscientist and counselor named Kirk Thompson, and the book is called The Soul of Desire. And like Piper, he sets out to solve one of the same problems, and he puts words to something that still troubles me about my heart. He says it like this. If it's really true that as Augustine wrote, my heart remains restless until it finds rest in God, then why, oh why, do other things compete so readily for my heart's attention? Why do I long so deeply for the idealized woman or work or status? Why do I yearn so hungrily for food or financial security or simply the absence of suffering or emotional pain? I'm reminded of, of Walker Percy's Love in the Ruins. It's a novel that was written in the 70s in which we hear the words of Dr. Tom Moore who says this, I believe in God and the whole business, but I love women best, music and science next, whiskey next, God fourth, and my fellow man hardly at all. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty. He, he does something in there that is very Augustinian. He ranks his loves. He orders his loves. Yeah, I believe in God and all that. But if I were to, to rank my love, God would be fourth. Like right after whiskey is where God is. And I don't know where I would rank the loves in my life. Or, or maybe I know and just don't want to talk about it. But I feel the symptoms, friends, of God being lower in my loves than he should I feel the symptoms. 
of my desire for God being weaker than it should. I feel the symptoms of not wanting God. So I'm far too excited about things that I know to be fleeting, and I'm far less moved by things that I know to be eternal. I am easily overwhelmed by things that threaten my comfort. I am easily underwhelmed by God's existence, inexcusably underwhelmed by his grace. Following my appetites feels like freedom. Obeying God feels like a burden. I don't want God like I should. Like right now, even in this moment, there are so many ways that my distorted desires, my impure desires, want to make this moment, this preaching moment, about me. And what I long for, truly, is I long for my desires to be exclusively for the glory of God and unadulterated by my own pride. But they're not. And one way to capture all that for me would be to say with honesty, God, I don't love you. I don't want to love you sometimes, but I want to want to love you. Is that you? Could you say these things about yourself? Um, Like, are your desires for God as strong? Is your love for God as pure as it should be? Do you want God like you should? Let me answer it for us. No. Anyone in the room with an ounce of self-awareness, anyone in the room with just a shred of sincerity can hear at least some of what we've said and find yourself there and see yourself in it, right? We all share this problem that C.S. Lewis sums up when he says, it seems our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And then he goes on to describe how our weak desires settle for things that are less than God and leave us feeling really far from prayers like, God, I want you, you're beautiful, I want more and more of you, and leaves us feeling closer to prayers like, God, I don't love you. We don't want God like we should. Now, you might be thinking something. Well, uh, thank you, Jamin. This has all been a huge bummer so far. Like, I hope you all have ice cream after church again. Uh, and I get it. It's uncomfortable. Here's the hope in, in leaning into the discomfort. The, the hope is twofold. One is short. The, the other will take the rest of our time. One is to simply say this. You're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, if you see yourself at all, you are not some uniquely failed Christian that can't figure out how to want God like everyone else does. And that is a really prominent lie in a room like this. Like maybe you even thought it during worship. You're like, wow, looking around at others worshiping, and you're like, they're really into this and I'm really not. What's wrong with me? Or what's wrong with them, right? And what happens is, is, is we can believe and we can be led into isolation by thinking that this is some unique problem for you, right? And here's the reality. It's not a Jamin problem. It's not a you problem. It's a human problem. It's a sinful heart problem. And because we all have sinful hearts, no one's alone in this. All Christians have a shared struggle with desires for God that are too weak. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right? The second hope comes from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says there's something that we do every time we gather here. We gather together. And every every time we gather is for the purpose of stirring one another up towards what? Love and good works. So my hope is to sit in verse 4, look with honesty at our hearts, that God in his grace might grow our love for him and strengthen our desire for him and order our loves around him. And I know that's a big hope, but I also know that we have a big God. And so I want to consider verse 4. I want to answer a question. Why does God care about what we want? And then after that, just unpack the verse in light of that answer. And in unpacking it, we'll talk about the future that we want and the kind of God that we want and and what we want more of in light of why God cares. I will try to be brief, but I will fail. So settle in for a minute. Uh, Verse 4 says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. Let's read it again. One thing have I asked of the Lord, 
That will I seek after. This psalm is full of requests that David makes. There's things he's asking God to do. God protect me. God be a shield. Uh, God, uh, you know, don't depart from me. But only about this request does he say one thing I ask. And what it means is there is one desire that is his chief desire. It holds primacy over all of his other wants. And he offers it to God, believing and knowing that God cares about what he wants. Why? Why does God care? Let's do some work first. Because there might be some of the room who think the opposite. Some might think God does not care. And by that mean two extremes, which are both wrong. Some could think God doesn't care in, in, in what I want, uh, what about what I want. And what it sounds like is this, hey, Jamin, you know this is the kind of thing that leads to like religious emotionalism, right? Where people like idolize how they feel and they make it all about an experience. And we don't need to pay attention to any of that. We don't need to pay attention to how we feel or what we want. We just need to believe have right theology and make right decisions, and that's Christianity. School started this week for the rollers, and one roller child was supposed to have a book read by the start of school. He had all summer, to, or she, he or she, I don't want to throw <laughs> him under the bus. Had all summer to do it, and cracked open the book for the first time the day before school started. And I feel completely responsible for that. Here's why. He did not get those genes from his mom. He got those from his dad. His mom is like summer reading done the first week of summer kind of person. His dad is like, hey, Jamin, did you read the book? And I'm like, no, I watched the movie and it was awesome, right? So he's reading it the day before school uh, and he didn't want to do it and he wasn't happy about it, just like all of us around, around stuff like that. And mom said to him, hey, you don't have to enjoy it. You just have to do it. And that is a really strong, wise mom line, right? It's like that is really appropriate in a lot of situations, including that one. But what I think, friends, is I think some of us might think that God would say something like that to us about believing in him. God would say something like that to us about following him. You don't have to enjoy it. You just have to do it because it's right. Desires don't matter. Just think the right thoughts. Just make the right decisions, whether you want to or not. You know, all our desires do is they tell us that something's wrong with us and something's broken, so you need to ignore the desires, or even you need to shoot the messenger and just suppress all desires. And the biggest problem with that are all the places in the Bible that contradict that. Saying something like, God doesn't care about our desires, just have right theology, you know what that is? That's bad theology. That's wrong theology. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalm says, Jesus throughout the book of John, you know what he does throughout the book of John? He will get to the heart of someone's relationship with him, not by asking, what do you think, but by asking, what do you want? What do you want me to do from you? for you, he asks? Do you want to be healed, he asks. All these disciples are leaving in droves in John chapter 6, and he turns to the ones who stay with him, and he asks, do you want to leave also? John Piper says it like this in his book, God is glorified in his people by the way we experience him, not merely by the way we think about him. Indeed, the devil thinks more true thoughts about God in one day than a saint does in a lifetime. And God is not honored by it. The problem with the devil is not his theology, but his desires. Loving God means right thinking about him, united with sincere want for him. But there's another extreme to the God doesn't care what I want, and it sounds like this. God doesn't care what I want, and what that means is he's okay with everything I want. And, and maybe we, we rehearse a, a really cliche line, like uh, God just wants me to be happy. 
And by happy, what I mean is I follow all that my heart wants. And the biggest problem with that is all of the Bible. The entire thing. Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross. Jesus is talking about seeds that fall in different kinds of soil. And there's one that's choked out by the worries of the age and the desire for other things. Like, listen, God wants me to be happy has enough truth in it to help us believe a lot of lies. And many have broken the heart of God and others by following God wants me to be happy all the way to an affair or following God wants me to be happy all the way to an addiction or following God wants me to be happy all the way to all kinds of things that God has already said, this will not satisfy you, it will ruin you. Okay, to our question. Why does God care about what we want? And it might not be for the reason that you think. It's not because God's lonely. It's not because God delights in this, you know, dichotomized, begrudging obedience. It's not because God delights in telling his children no, like a cruel dad who takes pleasure in disappointing his children. You know why God cares about what you want, friend? He cares about what you want because he wants your life to be filled with joy. He cares about what you want because he cares about your joy. This is all over your Bible The place that it is most clear is Jesus in John 15 having a final conversation with his friends before he dies. And he says this, as the Father has loved me, I love you. Remain in my love. Follow my teachings. I have told you these things so that your joy may, my joy may be in you and your joy may be what? Complete, full, overflowing. Augustine in his biography, Confessions, he writes about his weak desires for God. Uh, he is struggling to want God like he should. He, is, he has become a believer. It's after his conversion. He's struggling to love God. And then listen to how he describes it. This is so helpful. He says, I was astonished that although I now loved you, I did not persist in enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you, but soon I was dragged away from you by my own weight. And in dismay, I plunged again into the things of this world. I've been there. And then listen, as though... I had sensed the fragrance of the feast, but was not yet able to eat it. He says, I smelled the food, but I I just can't seem to stay at the table long enough to eat. He's describing our problem. His desire for God is too weak, but, but he describes being drawn away from God as being drawn away from a feast. Think about that. Like, think about the last great meal you had with people you love. And let's just assume the food was great. And let's assume that no one fought and stories were told and you laughed so hard your face hurt the next day. And it was delight and laughter and satisfaction and joy all packed around that table, all packed into that moment. And Augustine says, that's what God is. He's a feast filled with joy and delight and satisfaction. So he does not conceive of God as a God who primarily has a job for him to do. He doesn't conceive of him as a God who has a set of questions for him to answer. He doesn't even conceive of him as a God who has a list of commands for him to obey. He sees him as a God who has a feast for him to enjoy. And that's who God is. And that's why God cares about what you want and what I want. Because he wants us to want the feast that is his glory and majesty and wonder and beauty so that he is glorified and we are filled with the joy that comes from wanting God like we should. And Augustine is saying, like we are saying, I don't want God, but see this. This is so encouraging to me. What he knows, even when weak desires drag him away, it is his belief that he is dragged away from the feast of joy that keeps him trying to get back to the table keeps him being drawn over and over again by God. And because God cares about your joy, he's going to call to us 
as weak desires would lead us away from him. And he's going to say, come back, sit down, enjoy, feast. Everything you really want is here with me. He cares, to say it another way, that what we want is leading to joy. And what leads to joy is wanting him. So with that in mind, I want to walk through the lines of verse 4. And just ask these questions. Does the future you want, does the kind of God you want, and does what you want more of lead to more joy in God? Now, just to prepare you, it, at least in my life, it has a way of, of kind of like when you go to the doctor and, and maybe you're, something's wrong with you. Let's say you broke a bone and the doctor shows you a picture of what the bone is supposed to look like when it's not broken. And it shows you a picture of what your bone looks like as it's broken. And you see the contrast towards those two. That's a little bit of what this verse does. It contrasts where the heart should be, and then we see where our heart is. But the only reason that's held up, the reason why you get a vision, a picture of what it's supposed to be is why? So you can move towards healing. So you have a, you have a, a path towards healing. So the first line, it says this, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Would you read it again with me? To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is the future David wants to dwell with God forever. Here's my question. What future do you want? What kind of future have you sent your desires towards? All of us have conceived of some day that we are pursuing. My kids already talk like this. My daughter the other day said, hey, dad, one day when I live in a mansion, own a zoo and have 30 dogs, will you help me take care of them? I'm like, yes, that sounds amazing. But there's an adult version of that. Like maybe we have not articulated it, but we all have this one day vision for our lives. We have in our minds a day that is coming. We've sent our desires to that day. And you know what we're doing right now? So much of what we do today is trying to get to that day. One day I'll start a business. So much of what I'll do now is about then. One day I'll grow my business. One day I'll be married. So much of my desires and hopes are tied up in that now. One day I'll be in a better marriage. One day I'll be out of school. One day I'll have a family. One day I'll have the good things that I'm missing. One day everything will be fixed in my relationships. One day I'll have an amount of money where I don't have to stress. One day I'll have an amount of friends where I don't feel lonely. One day I'll have an amount of respect where I don't feel insecure. And desiring those things are good and, and godly and right. Many of those desires are placed in your heart by God. But if any, one of those days holds primacy over your desires, if, if any are the one thing you seek, what will happen today is you will be ridden with anxiety and fear and bitterness the moment that day is threatened and especially ridden with those things if and when that day never comes. Or worse, for some, what will happen is, is you'll get the future you want and discover it's still not enough. Goodness, that's my story. I told a count, my counselor several months ago, I feel like in many ways my dreams came true and I don't enjoy the dream. There is no disappointment in life quite like getting what you most want and discovering it's not what you most need. Where is joy found? Joy is found by setting your heart and desire on a future that's secure. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The one day that should hold the most weight over our wants is the day that we get to be with the Lord forever and ever. And what sustains us until that day is his presence with us now. Psalm 16 says it this way, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. 
The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Look at me, my friend. You might be in a world of confusion or disappointment right now because life is not going the way that you hoped. Hear me. God holds your future. He holds your future. The lines of life have fallen for you in pleasant places, and that might be hard to see today, but one day we will see our lives the way that God sees them, and this is his promise. You have a beautiful inheritance, and the more, friend, you want the future you can't control, the more you will be afraid, but the more you long for the future with God that he holds, the more your heart will make space for God-given joy and peace and satisfaction and contentment. Here's the next line. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Let's read it again. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David says, I want to be in the house of God. I want to be with God. What does he want to do there? He wants to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. What kind of God do you want, friend? If we're trying to understand our desires and where our desires are leading us, towards God and towards joy, or away from God and away from joy, What kind of God do you want? Uh, To ask it another way, what do you want from God? Because we know what kind of God we want when we know what we want from that God. And so what some of us want is some of us want a fair God. And what we want from him is what we earn through good behavior. And if God is fair and I do the right things and he gives me good things and we get frustrated with God or even abandon God when what I do and what I get in return don't add up and we forget Jesus who did everything right. And in return, got death, even death on a cross, so that we as sinful people don't get fair, we get mercy. When we want a fair God, we tend to get frustrated with God for breaking promises he never made. When we want a fair God, we confuse the promise of peace with the promise of ease. We confuse the promise that he will never leave with the promise that life will never hurt. And that's not God. Some of us want a safe God. We want from him. What we want from him is to be protected from all that we fear. Some of us want a distant God. What we want from him is that he requires nothing of us. Some of us want a small God. What we want from him is to bend to our will, which makes us God. What does the verse say? I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. David says, I'm not after safe God or fair God or small God or distant God. I want the beautiful God. And if I want the beautiful God, what I want from him is him more and more of God himself. Not what he gives, but who he is. And that's what we were created for, friend. God is beautiful. The the beauty around us is just a small taste of who God is. And there's beauty in all of our lives. C.S. Lewis says it's like following the sunbeams back up to the sun. We follow the beauty around us in creation and in children and in churches back up to a beautiful God. But we especially see God's beauty in the beauty of our Savior who allowed his beauty to be wrapped in the ugliness of sin and death so that through resurrection and salvation, he might make us beautiful like him. And when the God that we want is the beautiful God, What happens in our soul, what happens in our longings, what happens in our hearts is we don't relate to God by making demands. We relate to him by offering worship. He deserves it. We were made for it. Last line, to inquire in his temple. What do you want more of? Verse four starts, I just think this is so compelling. Verse four starts, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek, it ends to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. Starts with seeking, ends with seeking. Okay, 
but what happens is, is he gets there with God. And what he's saying is, I'm seeking God. And then when I find him, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep seeking him. What does that mean? Most of us want more, but we want more from a place of scarcity. I have so little money or so little friends or so little pleasure and enjoyment. And I want more of what's scarce, of what feels too small. Or we have a lot of that, but scarcity says one day you'll lose it. So we want more to give us the illusion that we're protected from loss. Verse four says with God, it's completely different than that. One thing I seek is to be with God. And when I am with God, I will keep seeking him. I will keep wanting more of him. It means this, there is so much of God. There is so much depth to God. There's so much glory to God. There's so much weight to God that even when we are with him, there will be more and more to discover and search and enjoy forever and ever. It's a kind of seeking, but it's the seeking that we were made for. It's not a seeking that comes because what we want is so scarce, but because of what we want is both satisfying and inexhaustible. So David can say, I found what I was looking for in God. And not only was I satisfied, but in the satisfaction, there is more and more to find more and more to want. That's God. That's what we were made to want, is him. What future do you want? Do you want the future that dwells with God forever and ever, and that's the day that holds all of your hopes and wait and wants? What kind of God do you want? Do you want the beautiful God who is himself the gift? And you have a vision for his beauty so grand that it can sustain you through the hard days and the dark days and the disappointing days and the confusing days. And, and you believe that God invites you to carry your grief to him. And you carry your grief to him because you believe the God that is big enough to be frustrated with is also big enough to be worshipped. And he's big enough to be beautiful. And one day all those things will be clear and make sense. Do you want more and more and more of the God who is both satisfying and inexhaustible? This is the invitation from the God that cares about what you want because he cares about your life overflowing with the joy that comes from wanting him. I started all of this with honesty and I want to end it with honesty. That all feels so unattainable. Desires for God that are that pure to sincerely want that future, God's beauty, more and more of God. When most days God ranks in my love somewhere lower than third. And again, it just feels so far from me. Like even knowing that God is for my joy, the messenger feels so far from the message. And, and, and if that's you as well, the tendency would be to go one of two directions. The tendency would be to despair. Oh, I'm not a Christian. Or I, I'm, not the, I'm not the kind of Christian that every other Christian is. Or on the other side, to just stop caring. Uh, to build apathy around weak desires so that we can ignore them and we don't have to be uh, uh, disturbed by them or confronted by them anymore. And there's a better way. Can I tell you the better way? And it will be done. The better way, feeling far from the message. The better way, feeling so uh, distant from, from the picture that this verse paints for us. The better way is to move towards God, to receive grace for weak love, and at the same time to trust that God can grow your love for him at the same time. I asked a question about St. Teresa's prayer that we haven't answered. What kind of prayer is it? Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. You know what kind of prayer that is? That's the prayer of someone who loves God. 
It's not, I don't love you, God, and I have no use for you. It's, I don't love you. There's not as much there as there should be, but I want to love you. So God, increase my love for you. And who am I talking to all of this about? God. Because I trust him. It's a prayer of honesty that believes about our God, that he is kind enough to listen to our prayers, accept our weak love, and somehow in expressing that to God, it is itself an expression of love for him. Look, God does not require of us that our desire for him is perfect any more than he requires that our obedience is perfect. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why Jesus came. This is the hope that we have in him. His death in our place and believing that the blood of Jesus not only covers our uh, disobedience, but it goes beyond that to all of our weak desires and covers all of our disordered love. So the prayer that says, one thing I want is your beauty, God, is the prayer of perfect love, delighting in God's glory. But the prayer that says, I don't love you, I want to want to love you, is the prayer of imperfect love, trusting in God's grace. And God hears and delights in both prayers. Can welcome strong love, can delight in it, can welcome weak love, and can grow it. Because, friends, it's not the strength of our love that makes us right with God. It's the object of our love. And weak love and a strong Savior is more than enough. Praise God. So maybe what's true? No. What is absolutely true? We can pray prayers from mixed hearts and our kind God hears them, delights in them, and even uses them to draw us back to the table, to the feast of his glory where he is worshiped and we are filled with joy. Let's do that together, church. Would you pray with me? God, I don't love you. More days than I wish were true, I don't want to love you. But I want to want to love you. And Lord, you saved me when I was just a boy. And what has been true every day of my life is I have wanted to want to love you, God. And so would you give, Lord, us a confidence? Would you expand, Lord, our view of you that we believe that we can come with honesty to you, God, and that you can peer into hearts that have too small of love and you can receive it? That, God, we the very people who say, I feel closer to the God I don't love you, I want to want to love you, that we can, because of your grace, be confident and pray prayers like verse 4. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. And you know all the parts of my heart. You know all the parts of our hearts where that's so confused and mixed and not true. And yet you, God, in your grace and in your mercy can find even the smallest amount 
of desire for you. Jesus, you do that with Peter. You ask him, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? After he had pledged love for you and after he had revoked love for you and denied you and you know about his heart that it's a mixed bag of pure and impure, of broken promises, of pride and overconfidence in himself and what Peter says back to you, Lord Jesus, is you know I love you. You know the amount that I love you. You know all the ways I've failed to love you. And where our love is weak, our Savior is strong. Praise God. So would you help us? Would we be a people, God, who believe about you, that the invitation from you is to want you and to grow in joy, the joy that comes only from desires for you? Help us. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.